the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There's a statistic that I repeat often when I'm gathered with ministry leaders from this past year that I repeat it because it surprises me, but back when we were contact tracing, when you were checking in at the door there, we had one Sunday, we knew exactly who was here, names, etc., when 47% of the people in the nave were there for the first time. They had never worshipped at Christ Church before. Now, some are coming and going, but some of you are in the pews. We have had an evolving practice of Holy Communion since March 13, 2020. And today, for the first Sunday since March 13, we are seeking to resume a full schedule. And I think we do well to pause very briefly and look at our worship, what we do, why we do it, where we've come from, and what the, what the next season of ministry looks like for us. Apart from that development, it's been seven years since we took a moment in the assembly together to walk through the Eucharist and refresh ourselves on practices and the, the manner in which Christ Church embraces the Holy Eucharist of the prayer book 1979. So I want us to be about that task over the next three weeks. I'll take the 10 minutes that we normally set aside for the sermon and just go as far as we get. Today, I kind of hope to get through to the gospel lesson, and then we'll pick up there next Sunday. You may have thought and believed that what you missed most since March 13 was human contact, and that what your church had to offer you most that it wasn't and couldn't offer you in the same way, was community. And those are important pieces. Those are things the church has to offer. But following, let's say, a theologian like Alexander Schmemann, a Russian Orthodox theologian who talks about the Eucharistic assemblies of historic churches, he believes that when Christians gather for worship, historic Christians, of which our tradition is a part, when we gather, we believe we're coming up, we're coming near every Sunday, the gates of heaven. That the beauty that you describe as beautiful windows, arches, uh, architecture, etc., is not meant to be beauty in and of itself, but it's meant to bring you near the gates of heaven. And if ever there were a time in our life when life in the world needed refreshing, when we needed another view of what can be, when we needed to come up against angels' wings, now is that time. And just to say it again, when historic Christians gather to make Eucharist, we mean to come right to the gates of heaven every Sunday to step in and glimpse about what could be, what can be, and what will be. Schremann continues, and he suggests that our worship on Sunday mornings begins even before your foot hits the ground out of the bed. That, that as you sort of make ready, as you sort of get ready and step out of bed, you're beginning to gather your thoughts, those for whom you'll pray. You're beginning to think about 
the sins for which you'll ask forgiveness, you're beginning to make ready for the assembly of the Christians. Make ready to meet the very presence of our God. And that journey to the gates of heaven, that progression continues from bed to kitchen, to car, to west door, quotation marks, west door, and then on into the nave. Now, here is a place to talk about what often happens in a tradition like ours. As one comes into the nave, you're seeking to sort of orient yourself to this time of worship. And it's not uncommon for you to see someone who will approach a pew, find their pew, maybe steady themselves. I find myself increasingly that I'm steadying myself. (laughs) Steady oneself here. And then I, I might bow in the direction of the sanctuary, the sanctuary being that space behind the communion well. Now, if you are Protestant-minded, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, <laughs> but if you are Protestant-minded, then that bow is directed to the cross above the flowers right there. That is the place where you are reminded Christ made his sacrifice. The Protestant-minded are recognizing the cross. The Catholic-minded among you, and again, there's an umbrella, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, might come and do the very same action, but mean something different. You're bowing in the direction of the altar, historically understood to be a place of sacrifice, and for Christians, the place where we present afresh. We don't sacrifice again, let's be clear but present afresh the sacrifice of Christ. You have in common parlance these two phrases, the reverencing of the cross and the reverencing of the altar. We use them interchangeably. We mean the same action by them, but historically there's, different, there's a different uh, historical context for the way they come into our life. You come in, you reverence the altar or cross, and take your place in the pew, and you're still about that, the, 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 that journey, the, the, the first few steps to the gates of heaven. You're preparing yourself now for worship. You might sit, hands in your lap, quiet. You might take your bulletin and just check where we'll be in prayer book and hymns, making ready that way. You might be managing children, praise God. <laughs> you might be managing grandchildren, praise God but you're making ready for the assembly. Some will stand, some will sit, some will kneel. You'll see all of those happening at Christ Church. And then opening hymn begins. And here, the procession is not merely about getting the ministers from the back of the church or back there in March 13th, we were in the chapel, from the chapel to the sanctuary. That's part of what's going on. But that procession is meant to gather us all together, all of our hearts and minds and souls. We're joining in that procession right up to the gates of heaven. So we're singing with intention. We're, We're beginning to focus very carefully on the presence of God that waits for us. And as that cross crosses your pew, the plane of your pew, you will find some in the pew who will, again, acknowledge that cross or reverence that cross with just a slight bow as it comes by. And that, again, can mean several things. You can recognize 
that cross, the place of Christ's sacrifice, but you can also say, as many of the actions mean back here, sort of silent intentions, you may also be doing this as you bow. You may be saying, I've taken my place in the procession. I'm jumping in now. I, I'm, I'm, I want to be in the group that comes up to the gates of heaven. We're here, we've arrived, the hymn is ended, and we begin formally then our worship, naming it in the name of the triune God, and continuing then with a prayer. We prayed it this morning, the colic for purity. It's very important, again, for the Protestant-minded among us. Thomas Cramner, the, first, the Archbishop of Canterbury, responsible for the first Book of Common Prayer, he took that prayer out of the vesting room, this is where the priests used to play it, and the priests alone. It was the purview of the priest to pray the colic for purity. And he brought it into the nave and said, no, not just priests, everybody. This is a prayer for all of us to pray to prepare our hearts for worship. The colic for purity, that ends, and the song of praise begins. We often sing the Gloria as we did today, but we could sing a, 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 a hymn from the hymnal or something that's very narrowly specific celebrating an aspect of the season that comes to a close and then the the prayer of the day the collect of the day that means to gather together the themes from the scripture readings the themes of the liturgical year and name them as the 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 framing focus for our worship that day we've been standing standing to praise, standing to pray, and we sit now to hear, sit for instruction, hear the word of God read. A couple of more things to say before we break. How many of you were raised with or confirmed with the 1928 Book of Common Prayer? I'm going to ask for a show of hands. Okay, 1928. I, th that's going to be a little less than a quarter of us, maybe even less than that. In that prayer book, we never read the Old Testament. You may have forgotten that. You may be thinking, he's lying to us. <laughs> right? But fact-checked, never take the caller's word, never take the caller's word for what it is. Always say, show me. Go to your 28 prayer book, and you'll see the lessons appointed for that day were New Testament, Psalm, and Gospel. It's been 79 that restored the Old Testament lesson, giving us the, really the full arc of the story. We get an Old Testament read. We sometimes sing the psalm, or we say it together, as we do often at 8.45, and then New Testament lesson. Finally, and we'll end here, the gospel lesson is read, and it gets special attention. First, it's read from a book that is sort of very ornate, it sets aside those four books because they're reading from the life of Christ. We'll stand. Sometimes, depending on the liturgy, there'll be a special procession. But the idea is that we're, we're surrounding these stories from the life of Christ with special honor and special recognition. One note. When you see the deacon announce the lesson, the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to today, Luke, according to Luke, the deacon, and it's become fairly uniform in the last, let's say, 30 years. It's always been in the tradition, but a little more prevalent in the last 30 years. The deacon will take her thumb and make the sign of the cross 
on her forehead, on her lips, and on her heart. This is a remnant of a time when the deacon was saying, Lord, may your word be in my mind, on my lips, and in my heart. Sort of preparing the one who's about to read from the life of Christ. The people have come to mirror that for the same reason that Thomas Cramner brought that prayer out of the sacristy and into the nave, the people come to mirror it because it's not only the reader who needs to be prepared to read, but the hearer who is preparing to hear. Manual acts, eh, none, well, few are required by the prayer book, but we should know all of them essentially are optional. More on that next week. <laughs> I've said these things to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.